Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Claire Daly, the TD for Dublin Fingal, has announced her candidacy for the Dublin constituency in the European elections. She will be joined by her Independence for Change colleague, Mick Wallace, who will be standing in Ireland South. Claire Daly joined us today alongside our Deputy Political Editor, Fia Kelly. Claire Daly, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Why are you running for Europe? Well, I suppose it's a decision that we um, thought long and hard before making. Um, I suppose to rationalise it for myself, it it reminds me of the time when I was a a community activist taking on the uh, local council and then made a decision, well, a lot of what I was campaigning about was coming from the council, so I might as well challenge for that myself. It's a bit the same now as a parliamentarian. Increasingly, what we deal with in in, uh, the Irish parliament either comes from Europe directly or Europe has been used as an excuse why we can't do things that I think would benefit Irish people. So, if you like, I think I said it to others, it's a bit like taking the fight to the heart of the beast um, to see, can we make a difference? I think particularly now, at the present juncture, with some very, obviously Europe is in an enormous crisis and with the dangerous rise of the far right, the potential breakup in some ways of the European Union, I think it is a critical time and I think strong, critical um, but pro-European in a different sense, uh, voices are absolutely needed. I was I was talking to a parliamentary correspondent who shall remain nameless, uh, who was singing your praises as one of the most effective parliamentary representatives who we have in the in the Oireachtas at the moment, and and was asking me to ask you whether this move is a sign, perhaps, of you feeling that you've done as much as you can do within the context of the Irish political sphere in the Oireachtas. In other words, because of the nature of, of politics, you're unlikely to end up in government over the next while. Uh, you've done a lot of good work, but you feel actually that those skills are now more useful and there's more opportunity to use them more effectively in Brussels and Strasbourg. Well, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, I, I do think that both myself and Mick Wallace are very effective parliamentarians. We were doing a, a route through our I suppose, dull work in terms of dull questions, holding ministers to account, scrutiny of legislation. I would say our record is probably second to none over over the range of issues that we would cover in a detailed uh, way. But this has been a difficult doll. And um, I think to make a a breakthrough on, it's not that I think that I can't achieve anything more uh, in the doll, but it's it's more so to see, could we make that type of difference in Europe? uh, what's well, the answer? Well, I just, I, I just, I, I just I wonder know. how much of that is about um, is about the fact that you know power has shifted obviously hugely to to, to Europe over the last mm. the last couple of decades. But on the other hand, I mean, a lot of people have commented that the system here is kind of stuck. Mm. Well, it has been particularly stuck. But one of the key reasons it's been stuck has been because of Brexit and everything has tied our hands and nothing has happened in that. So I suppose that brought us back again to Europe. I mean, I totally agree. It's been incredibly frustrating. We haven't had a normal functioning parliament this term. Um, And in that sense, yeah, a lot of that emanated from Europe. So in that sense, I suppose we're saying, why are we kidding ourselves spending all this time and diligence here? 
after the event when a lot of things are happening in Europe that we should be bringing home to Ireland actually before they happen. So, Is it the case now, maybe Claire, that you have championed quite a few causes in your two terms in the Oireachtas so far, like, you know, abortion reform being one, you know, regarder reform being another. Do you think maybe that work on those particular issues is largely done and that you may have to look elsewhere for I'm charges. worried here. Now, this is sounding like you're making me out that this is a retirement decision. And no, no, we're trying to say it's a yeah, difference. No. It, it, no, to be fair, it has been for people in the past, exactly. but I'm not yeah. remotely yeah. suggesting yeah. that what, it is and here I, so, now. And that's yeah. what I want to kind yeah. of check, if sure. you like, is that this mm. is not a retirement decision and we will be very critical, not personally, mm. of it being viewed by the political mm. parties as that. I don't think anybody has really gone to Europe with a view mm. to bringing Europe home in a timely fashion. You know, we get to deal with the crumbs after the decisions are made. That's not good enough. I mean, mm. we see that in terms of the PESCO situation. Mm. It's really at the 11th hour before the doll even was told that this had happened. So mm. clearly it had gone through a lengthy mm. process before that. But nobody in Ireland knew about it, not just the politicians, but the, the public either. That's just not good enough. And that's happening on other issues mm. all the time. When you say bringing her Europe home, what do you mean? Well, like, what I mean is that the information for that should be in Ireland in a timely way. Now, where do I mean in Ireland? Well, for example, we've looked at the situation that in terms of European Union matters, we're entitled to attend Oireachtas committees and all the rest. We'd be fully intending to do that if we were elected to go home and participate in those. But also to provide the information. The European Parliament comes with a lot of resources. Those resources should be used to give information and empower the people about what's going on in Europe in advance of the mm. decisions mm. actually being made because while the European Parliament can play a certain role, mm. in actual fact, it's the peoples of Europe mm. organised and putting their own national governments under pressure that actually delivers real change. And I suppose that's the type of mm. politics we've always represented. I've never said that being a parliamentarian in any forum is the you know red card to getting radical change. It isn't. It's a combination of using that pra- mm. platform to, I suppose, popularise ideas and encourage people to take actions from themselves. And I think it's the people of Europe who most definitely need to take action, particularly now in the dangerous juncture that we're at. And the issue of bringing Europe home and the committees, um, I think some MEPs have done that in the past where they've come home and attended the Foreign Affairs Committee, the European Affairs Committee. Are yourself and Mick talking about a wider... Absolutely, Justice Committee, where I just came from now, and uh, other committees. I'm sure there are opportunities on the Agriculture Committee and so on, and others in that as well, you know. It's interesting. We will definitely explore that. Isn't it? Uh, Actually, it's interesting to me that uh, I get a sense that European elections have always been treated as second-order elections, and they have sometimes in the past been used as retirement homes, or the elections have functioned as more of a beauty contest than than, than, than a real political contest of ideas. But I wonder, particularly in the wake of Brexit, Everybody's so focused on the processes over there and Ireland's position within the European Union. Might that change a bit in in these elections? I don't think anybody. I don't think there's been a huge engagement with the European elections so far. I don't think people have quite zeroed in on it yet. But I think that was the presumption by some people that because these elections are taking place against the shadow of Brexit and against the European Parliament having a heightened awareness amongst people, and that perhaps people may vote through a Brexit prism, but I'm not quite sure of that. I think that the European parliamentary elections have always been seen as a way, for example, there's an issue like Joe Higgins was elected to the European Parliament in 2009, like Nessa Childers was elected last time. There's always been, the election have always seen as a way of sending a strong, independent, non-party establishment voice to the European Union and to, as a signal to 
the but also protest, establishment usually here. a protest against the establishment. Yeah. A protest, but I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, there is an element of protest, but I think it's kind of used as a way, perhaps, of people who ordinarily might vote, might not in the ordinary course of them vote for candidates who would be seen to be out of the mainstream, as it were, mm. to kind of use that way of, ex- of expressing So people that. voted for Joe Higgins who wouldn't have voted for him yeah. in the Dáil election. We see, I, th- I mean, I think how you characterise it is right. Like, people haven't really engaged in the European elections and even allowing for the election mm. of sort of a different mm. alternative that wouldn't normally be, even with that, I think this juncture is different. Mm. And uh, You know what I mean? Because now we have to, and we would see our candidacy as different. It is very mm. much about saying... Irish people need to engage mm. in what's going on in the European Union more now. And that isn't just, you know, obviously everybody's sick hearing about, Brexit, about yeah. Brexit and all of that. And in actual fact, we spent three years talking about it when there was absolutely zero mm. we could do about it. So complete and utter waste of time mm. there. But the real debate is that Brexit is a consequence of the crisis in the European Union. It didn't cause it. Mm. It's a consequence of it. The rise of the far right is a consequence of it because the European Union has left behind millions of its citizens who are struggling badly. And we're at a crossroads now where, sadly, Mm. the far right are going to gain quite a lot out of this juncture. And in that context... That scares me as a parent and as a citizen of Europe. And uh, I think there should be strong progressive voices there because the centre ground is largely responsible for mm. for us being in this mess. Yeah. And it is a mess. And I think, you know, while I, I don't actually think that the public probably will hugely mm. engage, I don't think it's going to be that exciting of an election. It'll probably be clouded out mm. a bit by the locals, which is unfortunate and a bit ironic. But I, I, I see it as our job to yeah. try and... Gender a bit. Can you just clarify something you said earlier on, Claire. You said you're pro-European from a different point of view. There has been a tradition on the left to be against the European Union itself, but that's not mm. the position that you're. No, well, I mean, look at that. We love Europe, you know. Mm. I love European yeah. food. I mm. love European. I'm delighted mm. that my daughter is studying in the Netherlands, and I think when that I can travel freely. And when people say they love Europe and they, you know, are pro, that's what they really mean. But so when we characterise the debate or pro or anti-EU, I think that's a wrong framing of the dialogue because the dialogue really should be about what type of Europe are we building and not enough attention is put on that. And that's a real problem. And if by more Europe or being pro-European means more of the neoliberal agenda, the constraint on fiscal policy, the militarisation and the hardening of our borders, well... I'm not that type of European, absolutely not. And But unless that's addressed, the European Union is going nowhere other than in utter crisis. And I, I don't believe it can be quietly reformed, but I think the citizens of Europe need to engage in that more. But the institution itself as the European Union should remain in place. I'll be radically reformed, as you, as you said. problematic, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I'm not naive enough to think, uh, you know, that I as an individual or mm. myself and Equalis as two individuals can change that. But I'm quite sure there are other like-minded people. And, and speaking of that, you know, acting as, as individuals, and you're both members of Independence for Change, but, I mean, going into this what everybody anticipates is going to be a hugely changed landscape in the next European Parliament with a large populist mm. far-right block, among other things, if political trends continue a, a considerable decline in the kind of in the centre-left, the social democratic parties are suffering all across Europe. So, I mean, wh- who would you align with? Would you, do you see the current groupings continuing or which is the I one think, that you're well, more likely it, to attach yourself to? There's going to be a shake-up of the groupings. There's talk about new right groupings and so on. Whether there will be new left groupings out of that as well, I don't know. But at, as it stands at the moment, where would your natural home be? There's none that fit neatly. Uh, probably GUI NGL would be the most likely. We haven't put that on the ballot paper because that's 
Maybe not. We don't know what the shake-up would be That's the one afterwards. with Sinn Féin and, and, uh, the Nordic uh, and also Greens Luke Lanigan are members of, of as yeah, well. There yeah. would be a crossover in a European basis. It would go from sort of left-wingers to environmentalists, you know, quite a different eclectic bunch. But, I mean, look, we, we've worked in technical groups with quite eclectic bunches before. Mm. So, you know, you've got to come together to make yourself effective. It doesn't necessarily mean you're buying into all of the, you know, that you're all on message or anything. The, the idea of going to the committees, um, I saw there's a discussion on this in recent days and some of your political opponents would say, well, you have to make up your mind. You can't be both. Uh, this was the discussion with someone and they said, if you're not in Brussels representing the Irish voice, you're not doing your job as an Irish MEP. That the Dáil committees and or the Oireachtas committees and the European Parliamentary committees often meet at the same time, so you'd be dividing your time and you wouldn't be given adequate value to either or. What, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, they obviously don't know the European um, Constitution because by going to Europe, you're not representing Ireland, you're representing the citizens of Europe and that's supposed to be your brief. Mm. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, so it's not about just being an Irish representative, but it's very much, if you like, waking Ireland up to Europe in some ways. I don't mean that in a derogatory way to anybody in Ireland or anything. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going. To, we're going to go to the Justice Committee every Wednesday. We wouldn't be allowed anyway. And obviously that would cut across other work. But from looking at the schedule, have we seen it? It seems pretty light on commitments to attend sitting sessions of either committees or the European Parliament and in that sense there is scope to attend other um, meetings but like what's the detail of that sure course I don't know I've never been there but uh, we would do it in a manner a diligent manner as we do all of our parliamentary work Just another point to clarify I think people would be interested the issue of Brexit there, is, there was a left wing exit advocated during the referendum a couple of years ago by people on the left in Ireland what was your position just to remind people in that in terms of Brexit yeah no I mean we didn't like actively affiliate with that I suppose it's the main points that I would have made I recognise very much that the vote in Britain was one of disillusionment and very very difficult for a lot of people in Britain and the idea of, you know, just going back to the European Union now and saying, oh, you know, it's it's um, uh, neoliberalism continuing, I suppose, under the Tories, be it outside or inside. What's the difference of that? Whereas a radical Jeremy Corbyn alternative, either outside or inside, is something I would more affiliate to. But it's but interesting that, I mean, speaking of Jeremy Corbyn, that the, the, the sticking point... Uh, in relation to, say, the current negotiations between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May uh, is not over the customs union, or at least it's being argued that it's not, that there's there's potentially some common ground on that. It's on it's on free movement um, as part of the single market. And so it's interesting to see a left-wing opposition to free movement within the European Union. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, part of the Labour Party are trying to straddle a couple of things, aren't they? I would imagine that the Labour leadership realise that for them to be outside of the European Union and free from some of the constraints in terms of the limitation on state age and more freedom in terms of fiscal policy that they may be able to implement radical policies better Mm -hmm. than if they were still inside the European Union. But at the same time, they're in a a very, I suppose, fraught political environment where they need to be careful on that. They don't want to align themselves with the first. They're they're probably playing a bit too much of a clever game, the British Labour Party. They're also analysing that that Labour voters, one of the reasons that caused them to vote for exit was was because of concerns about immigration. So it? they're a you bit, know. you know, they are playing a bit too clever, which may rebound on them a bit, like, you know, but I suppose on the other side, it does show really is de- dealing with the debate in terms of are you inside or outside the European Union is too narrow a conversation area. 
that in actual fact, the debate is what type of Europe? And obviously, I want cooperation across Europe. But would I be very happy with Jeremy Corbyn being elected? Whether Britain were outside or inside, I think that's a more positive development than whether Britain are outside or in. Because you're advocating a more, you're showing that a different type of Europe is possible if they, you know what I mean, implement policies that are more, I suppose, anti-austerity, less neoliberal and so on. So... This is kind of mad kind of contest. It's a huge amount of candidates I'm looking at here, both yes. in uh, Dublin and and in Ireland South, where Claire's colleague Mick is running. Yeah, there's 15, 59 candidates across the country, 17 in Midlands North, West 19 in Dublin and 23 in Ireland South. I think it's more than there were in 2014. It's going to be quite the ballot paper. But outside of the main parties, so you have Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, uh, Fine Gael, I think there is scope for people like Claire and Mick Wallace to emerge from what is a very, very clouded field of non-aligned or smaller grouping candidates. Like if you look at Dublin, you know, you have a number of people like so you have Ben Gilroy, Independent, Rita Harrells, Solidarity People Before Profit. There's another Solidarity People Before Profit candidate in Dublin as well, Gillian Bryan. So there's a lot on the left and there's a lot also on that kind of populist right, if we can put it that way. Well, you that's, have Gemma O'Doherty, I mean, that's you have one of the, one of the striking developments. Yeah, you've got you, three of those, three candidates in that area. You have a number of candidates that are falling into that category of Peter mm-hmm. Casey in Midlands Northwest. You also have in Ireland South uh, a man called Jan van de Ven, who was linked to the IR exit movement. And you have Herman Kelly in Dublin as well, also linked to the IR exit movement. So for the first time, I suppose Claire is right in what she's saying that the, 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 the far, the, not the, the right, I suppose, that you have, a, a, I suppose, a classic European split now for the first time, I would well, say. I'd characterise Euro- some of those people as far, far right. In a European uh, parliamentary elections that probably for the first time in European elections, Irish voters have the full panoply of what the European Union has seen in the last few years, people from the, ex- the extremes of both sides. And I think the way this election is run and the tenor of the debate that is had over the next few weeks is going to be interesting to see if we follow the European pattern of those type of arguments gaining purchase with sections of the electorate, if not the wider electorate itself. Like I've seen, Claire, some of those candidates, um, certainly one in particular, make statements which would be, which which we would see as being very far-right statements and arguably, you know, not just anti-immigrant, but going a lot, a lot further than that. You know, unacceptable, actually, oh, up, up until now within do, political discourse. We do face the potential for the first time to see that type of dialogue mm enter an Irish-European election or an Irish election, which we've never seen before. And, and do you I think s- it'll be legitimised by the fact that it's present in this electoral contest? And people like, will be appearing, will it, will on, it, appearing it, presumably on the airwaves. Will it gain ground? Statements? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't see it gaining ground in a massive sense, but I think we can't be complacent. And that's one of the reasons why we're standing, because we've seen the consequences of complacency in what will happen in other European jurisdictions, where we'll see for the first time, even in some countries, large numbers of far-right representatives being returned. So I think we have to be very firm. I think in in general, uh, the debate will be held responsibly, but uh, I'd imagine that's why some of the individuals are standing, is is to get that initial airing. Bit of publicity, publicity yeah, on it. You know. uh, on, a, on a more kind of localist, traditional Irish way of looking at things, there's not that many Northsiders on the Dublin ballot. I don't think uh, there's Fia, any. Fiacca's pointed this out the other day. Yeah, I pointed out n- numerous occasions. Yeah, well, it's in a typical of Dublin, like really, and, and Irish politics in general. And, and by Northside, I'm sure some of the people will say, oh, we're Northsiders, but they're not really. They're city people, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> as in North County and Fingal, yes, yeah. they, they were totally 
uh, well, unrepresented as usual you'd have to say you if, know, you, if you look at the main runners in Russia Barry Andrews who's representative of Dunleary Lynn Boylan uh, from based on the south side yeah. uh, then if you look at the main other contenders Francis Gerald lives in Castleknock but represents the south side constituency has represented south side constituencies down through the years Mark Durkin is not from Dublin and is quite explicitly saying I'm not running for Dublin I'm running for Northern Ireland Claire is obviously from Dublin Fingal and is a strong north sider you have Alice Mary Higgins, who's from Galway. Gary Gannon is from the north. Gary Gannon's a well. city person, by Claire's, city person. Claire's, Claire's but analysis there. But there's a, there's a fact... Like, well, it, I just it, want to say they live on the north side, <laughs> technically, but we don't count it. It really. seemed to me no. to be the big... When all the parties and, uh, the, I suppose, the, the groupings in the doll put forward their candidates, it seemed to me to be the wide open gap. So it was that, you who started that, that, that rumour then, that, was it? That's no, why you were hounding that, me that, for that, flipping but weeks. But there, no, there was nobody on the north side. And I know it is, it is, it is really parochial, but sometimes that's what it comes down to. How do these elections work? We were talking just before that we switched on the mics about this, as, a, as opposed to previous campaigns for the Dáil or indeed local elections. It's a very bloody big constituency. You're not going to be able to knock on every door. I don't know what size of a team you possibly, have. You, You're not putting up posters, neither yourself nor Mick Wallace are putting up posters on a point of principle. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's an example, I suppose, of how we're different. I'm sick. Obviously, climate change is, is, is critical. And obviously, we've spent hours upon hours in the debate in the doll debating these matters. But this is one practical step where people could impact on the environment. We know the public hate posters, but everybody's afraid to make a stand because they're all afraid they're going to lose out. So should we, we, should, we, should we not just ban them? Is it not something that could, be should be well sorted fa- out? I'd be well in favour of that and they regulate it properly in Europe where everybody gets maybe a public space where they all get equal. Uh, but no, nobody has wanted to go there. So we're not doing posters. We think it's important not to... Um, we're going to be very limited in what we can do. Um, mm. Obviously, you know, political parties have all of their local election candidates standing, so their European candidate is going to be put into every door and will be knocked on every door by the party team who are out canvassing for the local candidate. And you don't have candidate. We don't have any of that. There will be some, some you know, independents and that who would support us and obviously some people who will, you know not necessarily organised but who will promote us that would probably feel we're, we're the closest candidates to them but no we, we haven't got the ability to organise that in a serious way So, so we do, do you some suffer by comparison with say you're, some of the people you're competing with obviously Sinn Féin is a oh, yeah. very significant organisation but people like the Social Democrats, yeah. uh, people before profit, they've all got yeah. party infrastructures yeah. which are going yeah. to be putting these. So you're not you're not on a balance, you're not on a level playing field there. But obviously, they would probably argue back. Well, you have a higher profile and you're more well known, and that's true too. Look, you can only do what you can do. We have a day job, which is to represent people in the parliament. That's our job. Now we can't abandon that, and I've no intention of doing so. So we're going to have to juggle that. You can't knock on every door in Dublin. I, I don't think you'll probably knock on any of them. So you've just mm. got to get out and try and meet people where so you're people are. Kissing babies at. in supermarkets. I'm not a great baby kisser now, but uh, anyway, but certainly turning up at, at supermarkets and train stations, uh, we could do that. Yeah. And one, social we'll media. Have to do, do you have a social media strategy, or how does one? Yeah, go about we'll that try kind and promote stuff? ourselves on on social media uh, as well. But uh, no, we're not generally the sort of spin types like who sort of you know go after that but I think social media is increasingly important and you know we'll try and engage with everybody who invites us to do so in a media sense which you know sometimes we wouldn't normally do but we we have a responsibility to the electorate if you're standing to get your message out which is why I'm here Um, and uh, but also I suppose public gatherings that we're invited to will go to. One of the things that may 
come into the campaign, Claire, is the issue of the whole controversy around Garda reform, whistleblowers, obviously with yourself running in Dublin, France Fitzgerald running in Dublin. She clearly still feels that she was treated uh, wrongly in that and that you will probably face questions like, I just pulled up a, co- a quote here from the Dáil a couple of months ago where the teacher called an opposition TDs to correct the Dáil record about allegations they made, uh, which cost the, uh, hurt some people and cost the state a lot of money. And he specifically instanced the claims about Garda Keith Harrison which were, was rejected by the tribunal, which you had championed. What would you say in a debate if France Fitzgerald says to you, you know what, I was treated really badly, you make claims that weren't to be true, and can you apologise now? Well, no, I'm very glad to hear that, and I can guarantee you now that if there was a debate, Francis Fitzgerald would not say that, because in fairness, we have never, ever participated in that latter part mm. that led to Francis Fitzgerald standing down and that mm. controversy. Other people who hadn't been involved in Garda reform issues entered the foray at that stage around the Tusla mm. allegations that led to Francis stepping down. We had no mm. party in that mm. and Francis would verify that actually it was against our advice that mm. there was a decision made to include Keith Harrison in the first module. We specifically said that there wasn't an issue mm. around the Tusla allegation there, but others had hyped it up so much at that stage that the political pressure was on to include it. That rebounded on Keith Harrison. Uh, And obviously he was, you know, very badly shown up by that. That said, and he has to take responsibility for that, there are other issues around Keith Harrison's case which are being treated in the latest module. And they were the issues, really, that we had uh, raised previously and that wasn't handled clearly. But in terms of the sort of... uh, I suppose, hype at the Mm. end around Francis Fitzgerald. We had no part Mm. in that whatsoever and actually didn't call for her head Mm. at that stage. So when he was, he was kind of talking about Fianna Fáil and the Labour Party, to be honest at that, not us. And Francis, in fairness to her, Mm. would verify that. Do you see that as a flashpoint in the election? Mm. I just think that there there seems to be a lingering fear. I think, Separate Claire is saying, but there seems to be a lingering feeling at Fine Gael that Frances Fitzgerald was done down badly yeah. and that they think that she was made resign for a, an, un, an unjust reason. And I think that may surface in the election if, for example, there are radio debates and this is put the Frances Fitzgerald, which it will be, I would imagine, I could see that becoming something of an issue. In the in the debate, and that, like, I accept just that she no, may not, she I, may not try and say, "Look, it was you, Claire," but I I, I can well, see. I think her you're saying, right, right. There is a lingering mm. thing, and Frances Fitzgerald does feel hard done mm. by. She was kind of forced to stand mm. down. Now, I would say, as I said at the time, and we said it to me. Fine Gael are responsible for that. It was Fine Gael members who panicked in the big media jamboree mm. that was going, they should have held their council. Mm. They should have stood by where they were the ones who balked mm. in that media frenzy. Um, so, there, and, and, and Francis Fitzgerald feels bad. And obviously some of the, la- the Fine Gael ones who were the cause of you it are kind of going, oh, poor. Um, around that time, absolutely. Look, we were on the record well before that. I don't think she was um, strong enough to be Minister for Justice. I don't think she was able for it. Uh, I think the civil servants dominated the situation. Um, But in the circumstances of her resignation, yes, I didn't feel that was appropriate. And we said that, actually, at the time. We took a very balanced thing. So while you're right, like that some Fianna Gaelers do feel that, they'll be directing that at the people who were responsible for that, which were Fianna Fáil and um, Alan Kelly. Can I ask another question? I think I seem to remember you on the floor of the House when Leo Varadkar took over his teacher quite early, saying that you had... You had looked upon him at some stage to say, for example, when he spoke up in favour of Morris McCabe and you agree with him at the time. And I think as far as I recall, you may have said that 
you thought he was decent or had integrity in some well, sort of way. But yeah, the, you, you did you did <laughs> praise him on the Florida House with that in mind. Since that has elapsed, has he lived up to those kind of, I suppose, characteristics you saw in him? You obviously worked that's with him good, in Fingal. That's a, good, that's a good question because I have to say I have been a bit disappointed. Um, I thought he had an incredibly good work ethic in the Department of Transport. I thought he was on top of his brief. I had occasion to approach him once or twice on health, which on the issues when I did, I thought he handled them well and appropriately. Um, but I've been a bit disappointed at how much he appears to have deviated and have his approach dominated by spin merchants. I think he's far too absorbed in how he appears and how he's going down rather than being on top of is that the him issues. or is that people around him? Do you think? I've no idea. Yeah. I've no idea. But yeah, I'm disappointed. And you're right. We did give him the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, it's in our interests to have a good Taoiseach like, as, as members of the country. But I've been disappointed and surprised, actually, at the approach he's taken. It's it is it's not what I would have expected. And that's not a, a positive comment. Um. Fiuk has mentioned, obviously, um, Francis Fitzgerald and Morris McCabe and all those elements, but more broadly, um, you've been one of the strongest voices in the Dáil in terms of tackling the kind of the, mul- the multiple issues which have arisen around the Garda Síochána over the last while. Where do you think any process of reform is now? What kind of hope do you have for that? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, there was a debate on the radio this morning between Paul Reynolds and Drew Harris, which is a debate that has never taken place, really. It was quite an aggressive interviewing of Drew Harris, that's something different. We have the uh, Association of Garden Sergeants and Inspectors going mad over the fact that people against whom uh, complaints are being made uh, aren't being promoted. Well, that's exactly something that we have called for for a long time. And, you know, it indicates to me that the new Garda Commissioner is definitely trying to shake things up. For the first time, we have somebody outside the old order. Can one person do it? Absolutely not. I know there's still a lot of high-placed of the old personnel still in place. Uh, To use the awful phrase, they're probably on a journey uh, (laughs) or or in a crisis, depending on which way you want to call that. But uh, things are different, but the process isn't completed. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Drew Harris... He seems to have made the right noises. But look, Mm. there's a very long way to go uh, on this. Very long way to go. I mean, I would be worried about some of the recommendations in the Commission for Future Policing. Some of it is just a redraft. I mean, GSOC needs to be radically revamped and strengthened. But that's something that they called for briefs. We could already be in that situation. We don't need to be waiting. The Garda Inspectorate are the best body as far as I'm concerned and have been brilliant, but they want to abolish them. So, look, we're in a state of flux, but at least it's being talked about. That said, now, even in the latter days, I've had people coming to me over very spurious cases where they've been the victims of Garda harassment. Uh, so it still goes on. And the area of accountability and transparency is, is definitely unfinished business. Can I, can, I, can I ask you one other thing? This, this may come across uh, as needy, uh, so hopefully it doesn't. Uh, there's somebody read about to be a quote that... You, uh, gave him the doll a couple of weeks ago where the subject of the Irish Times came up and uh, somebody s- s- 
said something I think half praiseworthy which is probably rare enough about the Irish Times as a source of information and you responded in a way that indicated that you didn't think it was such a good source of information and I suppose the reason I'm raising it is because we had you in about three or four years ago I think it was now we've asked you a lot of times since and we've asked Mick Wallace a number of times since and he hasn't come in and there's a general impression that you are less than impressed by the quality of the media and how it serves the Irish people. I even tried to grab Mick in his pizza place one time to persuade him to come in, but we still didn't get him in in the end. Are you, are you sort of, are you suspicious of Irish media in general? Yeah, I think the Irish media in general have been incredibly disappointing. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way or an individual way. I realise that it's in the context of change budgets, that the money isn't there to really sort of arm serious investigative journalism. It's not there. So what you have tended to have is people who... I look at the relationship in the doll, and I'm sure a lot of the media think we're a bit rude and it's not our, our natural demeanour to be rude, but we keep at a distance from the media because I think it's incredibly unhelpful. What we have in a lot of the newspapers is a, an interdependency. The journalists get the tidbits uh, and then the politician gets the few lines and the media are missing big stories. I mean, today all the headlines are um, uh, Catherine Sapone's co- publication of the fifth uh, Mother and Baby Home report and the outrage at the digging of bodies in, in Shanross Abbey. About three or four years ago, probably more Paul Redmond, who himself was resident in Shanross, had done serious research that identified hundreds of potential bodies in Shanross. And now it's been treated as if, oh, my God, this is a a, a new... It's not a new development. I mean, we had things like the cervical cancer scandal, which obviously was a serious scandal. But one of the key things out of that was the whole area of mandatory open disclosure. Now, myself and Mick had succeeded in getting mandatory open disclosure in legislation in 2017. Fianna Fáil were nobbled and reversed that in report stage. Then cervical cancer comes up a year later and it's the in thing. Everybody wants mandatory open disclosure. And here we are another year later and it's still not in. And nobody in the media, while they're hyping up all the... See, I'm getting semi-hysterical here now because it really really annoys me. Uh, Nobody is scrutinising that or joining the dots. And that policy could have been embedded in our health service now, which is the one thing that Scally pointed to. But instead of that, people are sensationalising it around some of the tragic individual cases. They're hyping up and they're not. So I see a lot of, I mean, I was really like last week, another example. Um, so you've started me off now. We've had, <laughs> um, you know, we were all there. We were down in the Justice Committee uh, last week at a hearing. Minister Harris was in before the Health Committee. It was standing room only. Like there must have been about 60 journalists jamming in to go in to see John Delaney and uh, the FAI. We came up for the National Children's Hospital was report that day. Now, I'm not saying, the, you know, the FAI doesn't need to be scrutinised, but in terms of public money and all of the rest of it, mm. it's an absolute pittance at 100 grand or whatever um, that was being scrutinised there. 600,000 on the PwC report that was out that time, not to mind the hundreds of millions that are going to be wasted and that we still could save. And there's been no serious... I mean, Mick Wallace, as the only probably builder in there, has put a series of questions to various ministers, and he did it that day as well, which you can see by their body language, they're very uncomfortable about because he knows how contracts are done and he has the detail on it. That His questions haven't been 
teased out or examined in any why, seriousness Why do you think the media drops the ball in that? I mean, you've mentioned <clears throat> the fact that there's economic pressures and cuts yeah. and there are all those it's kind of things. But is some do. of it, is, is, is that just what it is? Or it's a sense of politics as entertainment? Or is there that, sort of it, that, 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 that the media tries to ignore certain it's subjects? It's too hard to do the serious stuff. And maybe there's a, a belief that the public aren't interested in it, that all you can do is headlines and heads and a bit of, you know, gossip. But it does seem to be, you know, dumbed down. Media content is dumbed down. Now, that's not exclusive to Ireland, obviously, you know. It's an international phenomenon, but it's reflecting itself in, in the lower print media sales. So, look, at, I mean, it's, it's not personal, uh, but I actually think that the lack of media scrutiny internationally is one of the key reasons why we have the problems that we have in society. It's a political problem, but it's, it's also a serious media problem. It's become different, you know. It's, it's, it's different than it was. And that's very unfortunate because the media traditionally wasn't it always a great career to aspire. I, I was going to go and do, well, I was supposed to do journalism and everybody had a dream of being mm. that investigative journalist. We'll accept journalist. the point that, yeah, like budgets are squeezed, but we, 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 that issue of sort of was highlighted at the time of, of that controversy. I the do accept reporting the, is Yeah, it? I do accept the point that there was a sensationalising of that issue, absolutely at the time. But that issue that you instance was raised, I remember there were pieces in our paper around the time tracing the legislation through and where it had been nobbled, and that was highlighted at the time. Maybe not enough, oh, yeah, but, but it was. That was it one like article, but what I'm saying is since then, mm. since then we had, it took them a year to catch mm. up, and when they did mm. catch up, you know, mm. that point wasn't mm. returned mm. to. There is a way, the other thing I would say is that like we hear things and it is obviously because of the position you hold, it is easier for a parliamentarian to raise and tease out issues in a situation where you have privilege. Because of privilege, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we totally. are usually restricted in what we can... Like we have often countless times look into something and there's something there and there's 90% of an issue there and the final 10% means you can't make the jump from A to saying B, which restricts publication. That's just what we no, operate No, I get in. that, right? But it, it's more than that, mm. right? There is a monolithic, a monolithic viewpoint internationally. Look at the coverage of Venezuela here. Myself and Mick went to Venezuela. Nobody, not... Well, in fairness, Village asked me to do a piece and I have a piece in Village magazine. Nobody, I mean, we openly spoke about it in the doll. We had a meeting with Simon Coveney when we came back. Not a single media person asked us. Yet when we came back, there was front page pictures of Juan Guaido returning to Venezuela to, as it appeared, you know, thronging mobs seemingly supporting him. We'd been there the day before and sure no one even knew who he was. You know? And we had a different viewpoint and nobody even asked us for it. So it's, do you know what I mean? It's more than just, you know, privilege and being careful. It's about an agenda of how news has been managed. And I fully appreciate that all of the journalists operating in that are operating as workers in that arena. But that's the tone that's been set. And it's not just confined to Ireland, it's everywhere. It's incredibly dangerous, actually. Well, of course, we won't so hold that not, view and against it's not, you. And, <laughs> it's, not, and it's, it's not an Irish Times problem. This is an international problem. And it's actually defining a lot of how society is going forward. Claire Daly, or not. thanks very much indeed for coming in today. You're listening to the Irish Times. So if you just to get back to the battle lines as a whole, because uh, nominations closed on Monday at lunchtime. And as we said earlier, there's an awful lot of candidates. Who's definitely going to get elected? Um, I would think that in most of the constituencies, there will be a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin seat. So you would think in Dublin that will mean Francis Fitzgerald will get elected. Then I would 
probably be less sure of the rest. So Barry Andrews would hope to get elected for Fianna Fáil. Sinn Féin will hope to, to keep that seat. I think they will, although Claire Daly's entry into the race will have, I suppose, an effect on most people, I would say, because the thing about Claire Daly is she takes votes from across the political spectrum. It's not an exclusively left vote. It's not people who may agree with her worldview exclusively who are going to support her. Um, you would think in the South where... We must probably better explain that on polling day, it will effectively be a three-seater with one person held in reserve. This is in Dublin? This is in Dublin. So Dublin, as a result of Brexit, was allocated an extra seat in the European Parliament. It will be counted as a four-seater, so it will be a four-seat count. But the last Despite person, what the Taoiseach said a couple yes, of weeks the, ago, he, was, he got it wrong. Taoiseach was incorrect in that. Um, the Department of Housing have subsequently clarified that it will be run as a four seat count but the last person elected will be effectively held in reserve until Britain leaves the European and British MEPs leave the European Parliament the same will apply in Ireland South where it is going it is a four seater but as a result of Brexit it will be a five seater be run as a five seat count with the fifth person deemed elected held in reserve in the South I think it is probably accepted by most people that Fine Gael should hold two seats uh, out, of the five. out of the out of out not of, necessarily out of the four, possibly out of the four as well. Okay, that Billy Kelleher should get elected, that Sinn Fein should hold the seat, and then the fifth one is up for grabs between a number of candidates. So and geography, geography is really important so here. If you look it's at, such a huge yeah, if you look at yeah. the outgoing Fine Gael MEPs, you have Deirdre Clune in Cork, Sean Kelly in Kerry, Billy Kelleher is coming out of Cork now, and Leonie Rita. The Sinn Féin MEP is around Cork and Kerry as well. The other, I suppose, larger population point there is the Midlands and the South East. The South East is probably likely to yield the other MEP because we have Malcolm Byrne, the second candidate for Fianna Fáil running out of Wexford, Andrew Doyle, the third candidate for Fine Gael running out of Wicklow, Grace O'Sullivan, who ran five years ago as a Green Party senator and is quite a good candidate people kind of think she could be a bit of a dark horse in this campaign, is running out of Waterford. And then also we have Mick Wallace out of Wexford as well now. So I suppose if you are to become that South East MEP, if there is to be a South East MEP, your job is to stay Is geography more pack. important than party? I think that probably will be in, in this instance that there's a huge sway of that constituency that if everybody is clustered around the core Kerry area, you're talking about somewhere that spans up across the Midlands into the South East there would have to be someone from outside the Cork Kerry cluster and I suppose the South East is probably the one where it's likely to be given the population centres around there Let let me ask you one question at the party level though Uh, we had Eamon Ryan in a couple of weeks ago and Pat was making the point that the Greens if by comparison with their European colleagues in other countries are underperforming um, you know, climate change is increasingly high up the political agenda in plenty of countries, maybe not here as much as it should be elsewhere. A European election should be the opportunity for the Greens. And then the other party I think of is it should also be an opportunity if the Labour Party was to get any kind of a bounce or any sign of a return to, you know, to previous form. Is there much of a sign for either of those parties that those opportunities might be grasped? The Green Party are underperforming and I think they would probably need a very strong candidate if they were to. They have had a history of doing well in European elections. Let's not forget Eamon Ryan nearly got elected the last time, lost out to Nessa Tullers in the end. But I'm not sure if the candidate in Kieran Cuff they have in Dublin this time is the person to, I suppose, drive that green vote. The former TD. Yeah, to make it yeah. into a seat. But I don't think he has the, the, the 
the stature or, or the kind of uh, I suppose resonance with the public that, that Eamon Ryan would have. I think if there is to be a green seat, Grace O'Sullivan is probably the more likely option because she has a track record down there. She has ran before. She's in the Senate. She is acknowledged as a strong candidate by the other parties as well. So I think the Greens may have to hope that she could make it over line. I don't think Kieran Cuff is going to do it. The centre-left is very fragmented anyway. If you look at Dublin, for example, we have the Labour Party, we have the Social Democrats, we have the Greens, and we have Alice Mary Higgins, Michael D. Higgins' daughter. And you would have to feel for the Labour... First time ever, I think, probably, that uh, um, the offspring of the president has has run an election of this sort. Well, uh, Nessa Childress. Uh, a living president, or a president, uh, uh, president uh, uh, who's currently uh, in the Aura, so oh, yes. put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, um, I, you would have to feel for the Labour Party, and you are right, like the Labour Party, I think I think the, the local elections would be more instructive for the, I suppose, renewal of the Labour Party is if there is to be one, because I don't think, although they will disagree with this, that they, anybody else credibly believes that the Labour Party can win a European election seat. It's a go, though. I nearly got knocked down by a bus with a big face of Alex White on the they side of the They are giving it a go. Maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I think you would have to feel sorry for the Labour Party in that Alice Mary Higgins is going to chip a few votes off what Alex White could hope to achieve. And if you're in the Labour Party, you would say, Michael D. Higgins was a member of our party for years and years and years, a storied career in our, par- a storied career in our party, chairman of the party, cabinet minister for the party. We supported him as a Labour Party uh, nominee in 2011 for the presidency. He was independent one the last time, but we threw it, the party threw its weight behind him. Alice Mary got elected to the Shannon a few years ago and has not... I suppose, returns to Labour fold. And I'd say there's some people in the Labour Party quite miffed that she is running against the Labour Party at a time when they're trying to drag themselves up from the gutter. And the Stockdowns had a bit of an internal fight, but they finally did run Gary Gannon, although there was some toing and froing. There was weather. some toing and froing, and the uh, party, I suppose, hierarchy aren't Gannon's biggest fans, as we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, he could have been positioned to do quite well and may yet do okay, but I just think that Claire Daly's entry into the race has probably kind of wiped that left of centre field to, to a large extent. That Gary Gannon, if he positions himself as that north side, centre left candidate who had a history on campaigns like repeal, could have done okay. But I think perhaps that people like him may have to come in behind Claire Daly now that she's in the field. And just a last thought, because we will return to this over the next while the celebrity death match I'm really looking forward to Peter Casey versus Luke Ming Flanagan. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Peter Casey, after kind of saying he was going to run for a doll, then the European Parliament, then a doll, then the European Parliament, he finally made up his mind that he's running for the European Parliament. Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting one. I don't think Casey's going to do as well as he did in the presidential election. I know it's a different election. It is a second-order election, like the presidential election. Let's bear in mind that he had a field to largely himself. Michael D. Higgins was the runaway incumbent. He livened up a dull campaign with very controversial comments. He wasn't up against the party machines of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. He is now, and I think that may come back to... Uh, that will damage his prospects. Luke Ming Flanagan, let's bear in mind, got an absolutely massive first preference vote in the last uh, European parliamentary elections. Even if he's to shed some of that vote, he could still get elected. It's going to be a close one, but I think up there uh, in the northwest constituency, it's a four-seater. McCarthy is one of Sinn Féin's strongest personalities. He's a good MEP. People speak highly of him who don't even agree with his politics uh, in the European Parliament. And he'll Parliament. be gone into the Dáil yeah, in a few months' time. He probably will be gone into the Dáil in a few months' time. Murray McGuinness is one of the vice presidents of the European Parliament. Very, very high public profile. 
don't think Fine Gael will do a second seat up there with Maria Walsh. Fianna Fáil, confident in taking a seat in Bre- with Brendan Smith, the Kevin Monaghan's G, not as confident with Anne Rabbit. And then that last seat, as you say, will be a, a fight for that independent vote. Is it Mink Flanagan or is it Peter Casey? And we will see all of that in the space of only a few short weeks. Thanks to Fiac for coming in today. Thanks also to Claire Daly for joining us. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our engineer, JJ Vernon, our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can usually find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts and you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>